rounds, and this is the six Robert Greenstein grant rounds, and I'll introduce the lecturer in a second. I hope everyone is doing okay. You're staying safe. Uh, I'm sure you're having a cup of coffee this morning while you're watching uh, remotely our grand rounds presentation. And uh, we were just having a discussion here in the in the studio uh, about when we'll go back to live grand rounds, and certainly not for a while. And probably uh, my guess is that it, we won't do that for the remainder of the year. Probably uh, maybe September we'll look to uh, getting back to seeing everyone in uh, in real life and shaking hands and giving hugs to each other. We'll get there. Uh, and, and I can say that because we have some really good news. Uh, you, most of you have heard about the coronavirus vaccines uh, from Pfizer and Moderna. That's a new technology with mRNA and uh, very promising. I mean, you look at the uh, antibody responses, the T-cell responses, both CD8s and CD4s, and the efficacy of the, uh, of the Moderna vaccine, which looked like it was 95.5% efficacious, very safe, at least for the preliminary studies. We have to wait for the final studies, but my guess is We'll have vaccine for the uh, frontline providers uh, here in Connecticut, including in Connecticut children sometime at the uh, end of uh, December, beginning of January. So stay tuned. As soon as we have it, we'll, we'll let you know. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully you're, you're hearing me okay and there are no technical problems. If, if you can't hear me, raise your hand. That's what you need to do and uh, we'll, we'll find out. Now, uh, the, this Grand Rounds, as I said, is in recognition of, of the numerous contributions of uh, of, of Robert Bob Greenstein, uh, who uh, really was uh, an amazing physician, geneticist, uh, really uh, uh, the father, in my opinion, of genetic testing here in the in the state of, of Connecticut. Uh, in recognition of all his contributions to the healthcare children in 2015, we, we established this honorary Grand Rounds lecture. Uh, and this lecture celebrates Bob's formidable stewardship and exemplary, exemplary accomplishments in pediatrics. And it will continue to remind us of as long as I'm chair uh, of his legacy as a caring pediatrician, pediatrician, a teacher, mentor, and innovative leader in newborn screening and genetic counseling. And uh, this morning's lecture by our, uh, Bill Bruckner, who's, uh, who was one of our pediatric residents, one of our most outstanding pediatric residents who uh, trained at Boston Children's, uh, will we'll, we'll touch upon some of these issues of metabolic diseases that are part of genetic uh, and newborn screening. Uh, so we, I'm really looking forward to the lecture. I, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Joe Tucker, our own jo Joe Tucker, our geneticist, uh, who's been carrying the, 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 the load of all of our uh, genetic uh, testing and, uh, and our genetic program for so many years, and, a, uh, and somebody who learned from Bob Greenstein about uh, genetics uh, during his fellowship and training. Uh, we'll, we'll actually introduce uh, Bill. And Bill is now a, a, a trainer at Boston Children's, is now at Brown. Uh, we're still trying to convince Bill to join us here. So, Bill, I know I just said this to you this morning, but you and your wife are welcome to come to Connecticut Children's. So I'm making a pitch during Grand Rounds that we can actually recruit you and bring you here. Uh, with uh, So no further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Joe Tucker to introduce uh, our sixth speaker for the Bob Greenstein Honorary Lecturer, uh, Dr. Bill Bruckner. Joe? Joe, you may be on mute, maybe. Hi there. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm so pleased that Dr. Brucker is able to join us this morning for the Robert Greenstein uh, Memorial. Um, his many accomplishments include an undergraduate degree in chemistry uh, from Brown, a PhD in biology also from Brown, a Howard Hughes Fellowship, a Royce Fellowship, and a National Research Service Award, uh, among others. Uh, after his medical education at Warren Alpert, 
medical school and then pediatric residency here at Connecticut Children's where he endured not one, but two rotations with me in genetics. Uh, he pursued additional training in clinical genetics and biochemical genetics uh, at Boston Children's. Um, he joins us from Brown University where he's currently faculty. Um, perhaps most important of all, uh, he's just a really great person and, and we're thrilled to have him here today. So I'm looking forward to his talk and please give him your attention. Thanks. All right, uh, first slide. Uh, well, thank you guys for inviting me here to speak today about one of my favorite topics, uh, which is ketotic hypoglycemia. It's a very interesting disease because it doesn't really have a good known molecular cause, but it's something that causes a lot of metabolic problems because children have recurrent, often severe hypoglycemia. Next slide. So metabolic disorders have what I would call like a state dependence. So typically these are disorders of an unstable catabolic state. So if you, you go into a fasted state, uh, you, you tend to die because your body either can't deal with the production of an intoxicant or you can't generate something you need in order to stay in that catabolic state, like sufficient amounts of glucose. Uh, typically uh, in uh, ketotic hypoglycemia or in any metabolic disorder, uh, the therapy is based on uh, promoting the anabolic state uh, and in controlling uh, the flux of intoxicant. So uh, disorders of, uh, of catabolism can basically be broken by introducing insulin-based signaling through giving calories. So the intoxicant is usually the problem, but the real enemy of any metabolic disorder is, is the catabolic state. And that's the first thing that often has to be corrected before dealing with any secondary issues like, like hyperammonemia. If the person remains catabolic, then the ammonia levels are, are going to keep going up. And if they remain catabolic, sometimes the glucose levels are going to keep going down. Uh, so um, the other thing, too, is the state of the patient. If a person has gastroenteritis, then they're, they're different from a patient who's otherwise well. So someone who has illness-associated physiologic changes is going to have a more intense catabolic response and is going to need more intense caloric therapy in order to get them into an anabolic state. So sometimes D5 isn't enough if you're still producing ketone bodies. Ketones will sort of tell you what state you're in. If you have ketones, those are like the shark fin of the catabolic state. If, if they're gone, then you know you're in the anabolic state. But if they're still there, then you, you haven't given enough calories. Um, typically, studies in the well state, such as fasting studies, are, are not always good models of that illness state. So for children with hypoglycemia, 
they will typically do fasting studies sometimes, and then they'll often be negative. They often won't find a good cause because that child is usually brought into the hospital in a very, you know, normal, healthy state, and then put through a controlled fast, which is very different from that child having a day of diarrhea and vomiting where you can't get any calories in them. Next slide. Uh, typically, uh, the, uh, uh, the catabolic state is the driver of most metabolic intoxications. And even if a child doesn't have a diagnosis, if they demonstrate a physiology suggestive of catabolic insufficiency, that's more important than an established diagnosis. So a child who has, you know, you know, vomiting and has a history of, you know, significant ketone productions and hypoglycemia, even if there's not a good molecular diagnosis for that child, you know, treating them by, you know, putting them in the anabolic state earlier rather than later is kind of the way to do it. And uh, one thing that can happen too is these are idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia tends to also be called toddler hypoglycemia. So it tends to typically hit children uh, kind of between, you know, nine months and, and eight years, and it sort of fades away. And in different developmental states, uh, the, the, uh, there's an increased uh, demand for, for glucose. So based upon the fact that uh, there's no good storage ability for glucose, um, uh, the, um, uh, the brain has a pretty significant uh, demand. So the, the average head circumference per height is much higher for a neonate and a toddler than it is for, for an 18-year-old child. So children generally require uh, like a higher glucose infusion rate than, than older kids. And that may influence some of the ability to fast. And typically for establishing a metabolic diagnosis with, um, you know, critical labs, you're usually trying to establish a, a character, a pattern of chemical defects that then you can trace back to a gene. Sometimes that works and sometimes it won't, but we'll sort of go through a case a little bit later in the talk that has all those critical labs associated with it. Next slide. So typically the body's endocrine system is always sort of in a tug of war between the catabolic state, which liberalizes nutrients in the, in the fasting state so that the body can maintain an energetic balance. So sugar reserves like glycogen can be broken down, fats can be broken down, and anabolism is the building state where you know protein isn't broken down, it's made, fats aren't broken down, they're stored and uh, glycogen isn't broken down, it's made. And both of these are actually never completely on or off, but one tends to have an advantage over the other based on different states. Next slide. Typically a blood glucose less than, uh, than 75 milligrams per deciliter is when the catabolic response really tends to kick on. One of the markers of a true glycogen storage disease is that uh, children typically don't grow very well. So short stature sometimes is your best clue that someone might have an occult glycogen storage disease because they're using every catabolic pathway they can in order to maintain a normal blood glucose. So they tend to kind of hover around sort of like the, the 60 to, to 70 to, to 80 uh, blood glucose ranges. So they're always breaking, never making. When you tend to restore those blood glucoses, they start to grow. Next slide. 
Uh, so the, the first uh, description of idiopathic uh, ketotic hypoglycemia was actually in 1924, and it described a group of young men who, after some vomiting and diarrhea, would go to bed and then wake up and then have, um, have seizures. And then in between these episodes, there was absolutely, you know, no sign of metabolic disease. They could fast through the night and not have any trouble. Uh, but in illness states, they tended to have problems. The disease was further studied in the 60s, where it was much, much more intensely studied and really was where most of the biochemical understanding of the disease comes from. And they were actually able to show that there was in many children uh, a gluconeogenic substrate failure. So there was not a substantial enough catabolic response to maintain gluconeogenic amino acids in the blood. So there wasn't enough flow from the muscles to the liver to maintain a normal blood glucose. And these kids would kind of cap out and then become hypoglycemic during a fast. Um, and uh, uh, basically they said that uh, one of the big problems was a failure of these children to adapt to a fat burning economy. So they had a harder time switching more from a, a gluconeogenic to a ketotic response. Oh, I would have um, just one, one request for the presenter for my slides. Could you potentially do a share screen? Cause I, I can't see the lettering all that well. Uh, well, anyways, um, Basically, the recommendation for these children at that time is pretty much what there is now. And there's not a lot of evidence base for exactly how to deal with this, even though it can be a recurrent severe disorder where, you know, young children, you know, may end up being hospitalized for a hypoglycemic crisis, you know, every other weekend for several months with blood glucoses, you know, really in the thirties with every crisis. And every time that happens, you know, there's a risk for, for brain injury. And I've seen children who've had such severe hypoglycemic crises that they actually did, you know, permanent occipital brain damage, which is the target that tends to be struck. Uh, but, but sort of catching these kids before they go into that state, providing carbohydrates, and then potentially even admitting them for dextrose containing fluids to, uh, to put them in the anabolic state until they're able to maintain adequate caloric intake often ends up being, you know, sort of the, the treatment that they get. Next slide. Um, so the, uh, it's the most common cause of uh, hypoglycemia in childhood, depending upon what you read. Some people say hyperinsulinemia is more common. Uh, some people say idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia is common. It's recurrent. It's symptomatic. So parents know it happens because children are lethargic. Uh, they have changes in behavior and, um, and sometimes become hypothermic as well or even have seizures. Uh, typically, there's very high levels of ketones in, in the blood and urine and um, a hypocaloric uh, and uh, a high, high, high fat, low carb diets, uh, fasting and intercurrent illness tend to be the triggers. Usually fasts of 10 to 16 hours are provocative and mostly that's the toddler age range. Uh, these children actually are usually don't have any 
glycogen left in their livers when they get into crisis. And some people have given them glucagon and have actually gotten no response. So that's probably one of the worst things that you can do in these types of states is try to reverse the hypoglycemia with glucagon because they've, they've run out of um, all of their glycogen at the time of crisis. And they've actually even run out of the ability to sustain glucose through a normal flow of amino acids from the muscle to the liver. Typically the onset is between one to two years of life and uh, remits by ages five to eight. Though I, I've seen individuals with this who can be as old as 25 and have a much more muted pattern where their blood glucose will really get into um, you know, the fifties uh, uh, even with, with vomiting and dehydration, but they have the ability to care for themselves better than they did when they were at those more fragile ages. It generally tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion after um, uh, an endocrine and, and metabolic investigations have proven that there's not anything more serious. Next slide. Uh, typically, the lab associations you see are, are markedly elevated free fatty acids, elevated ketones, elevated glucagon, and elevated cortisol levels. Um, metabolic acidemia can actually be pretty significant, and bicarbonate levels can be uh, pretty low. They can go down to between 9 and 12 in some cases. Um, and the ketosis actually makes children nauseous, so it makes them more apt to vomit. So they get into this vicious cycle where their fasting response is, uh, is, is, is dangerous and inadequate to maintaining a normal glucose level. And then they're also nauseous and don't want to eat because they're so acidemic. So it sort of sets up a vicious cycle that typically has to be broken with anabolic support in some cases uh, with uh, a dextrose containing fluids. Usually you see decreased glucose. Plasma amino acids can be useful because you see decreased alanine and um, also, uh, which is the chief gluconeogenic amino acid, and you usually see decreased insulin levels. There's usually no hepatomegaly or hepatopathy like what you'd see with a glycogen storage disease. And um, they're not also not associated with uh, elevated lactate. And there's really poor diagnostic ability um, with urine organic acids, um, other markers for abnormal urine organic acids called urinacyl glycines, uh, serum amino acids, and uh, plasma acyl carnitines. Uh, probably the amino acids are the best way to go because they'll capture a decrease in all of the gluconeogenic amino acids. And that, that's usually a sign that that sort of physiology is present. Next slide. So this is sort of the balance of uh, the when sugar is liberated in the, in the blood. So the first two hours of a fast are sort of what, what you absorb. Um, you know, the first, you know, four hours after that are sort of mostly driven by your glycogen scores. And as your glycogen stores wane, the amount of uh, uh, amino acid that's liberated from your muscles and going to your liver is what maintains your gluconeogenic response. And that's both covered by the liver and the kidney. And then eventually you switch to a more fat-based metabolism and ketones are supplied. Typically hypoglycemia, the hard definition in most metabolic textbooks is 45 milligrams per deciliter or less. Most people would say 50 um, uh, or, or less. Um, uh, generally, uh, uh, the uh, 
hyperinsulinemias are a lot more dangerous forms of hypoglycemia because you, you lose everything. You lose your free fatty acids, you lose your ketones, and you also, you know, lose, lose your sugar. Uh, where in these cases, sometimes you can actually find, you know, relatively low blood glucoses, like in, in the high 40s with someone who doesn't have those signs of neuroglycopenia, confusion, lethargy, um, because they have a pretty significant ketone response to give their brain additional energy. Uh, it's estimated that what the, the, without any glycemic support, I think a, a blood glucose content can only sur support the brain for an hour is something I'd read uh, before. So you really need to have sort of a constant supply because there's a constant demand uh, from the brain. So if you can't use ketones effectively, or you can't produce ketones effectively, then your, your blood glucose can drop pretty quick with, without that. And that's the problem in fatty acid oxidation disorders. The glucose sort of remains kind of in those middle ranges during a fast. It'll go from like, you know, 80 to 70. And then before you know it, in a few minutes, you'll be down to, to 20. So that's sort of the marker of a, of a hypoketotic hypoglycemia is a normal range and then a sudden catastrophic drop where ketotic hypoglycemia is sort of a little bit more of a pokey descent. Next slide. In children who have um, uh, glycogen storage diseases, typically we extend uh, the, the absorptive phase through uncooked cornstarch. Next slide. Uh, so typically this is a, uh, uh, what you would um, uh, sort of see uh, in um, uh, a typical case of uh, 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 hypoketotic or um, uh, ketotic hypoglycemia for, for a parent call. If you've ever wondered what it's like to do a fellowship in metabolism, uh, it's a lot like being an adolescent because you're, you're always on the phone. So this is sort of a child who's in the typical age range. He's two years old. He's going into a crisis. He's had diarrhea, so he's not keeping any nutrients he eats. He's vomiting, so he can't get any nutrients in. You're going into nighttime, which represents an unconscious fast. So without therapy, his story is going to end pretty badly. Um, so he, he has a lot of food allergies. So important sources of, you know, slow release energy are actually protein and fat. Next slide. Um, or, or protein and, and fat. And so you, protein is actually a good slow release source into, into the, from the gut to the liver to, to help support gluconeogenesis. So children who have dairy allergies are usually at, at pretty significant risk for um, uh, ketotic hypoglycemia. Typically children will sort of have poor weight and you know, normal length and head circumference for this type of disorder. Next slide. Um, so restrictive diets, poor weight gain can be a problem. Next slide. Uh, when uh, basically this is not an uncommon story either. So uh, when the child had had a previous episode when they're much younger, um, they were basically taken to an emergency department. Uh, they're given uh, a juice after being identified as having hypoglycemia 
they respond well to that, the blood glucose goes up and then uh, they're sent home without the catabolic state being reversed. So that glucose increases for a few minutes and then after a couple hours, that's gone and they're still substantially catabolic. So the sugar is treated but the state is not. And then they'll typically go to bed and then wake up the next morning with neuroglycopenia, if not a seizure. The other thing that parents pick up on that you can often find in the medical record is hypothermia. So hypothermia is the body's natural response to hypoglycemia, where the, the body will sort of cool to decrease demand for energy. Uh, they actually did an experiment in rats where they took a bunch of rats, made them hypoglycemic, and then tried to keep them maintaining a normal body temperature through a heated environment, and then they all died. So um, uh, if you restore normal glucose concentrations, the body temperature will warm back up. So hypothermia that's responsive to um, uh, increasing uh, uh, Im improved glucose levels is actually all part of the constellation of ketotic hypoglycemia or any hypoglycemia. Next slide. Um, so that's basically more of that. Next slide. Uh, so essentially, um, uh, ketonemia and uh, neuroglycopenia are uh, two things that you typically see um, with this, and that's exactly what he has. Next slide. Uh, he's actually in significant danger because um, uh, he's about to go to bed, like I said before. So without treatment, he could end up in, in, in serious trouble. Oh, perfect. Uh, he doesn't have um, any hepatomegaly on uh, physical exam and he doesn't have any developmental delay and he doesn't have you know any unusual features uh, so that the absence of hepatomegaly is actually one of the most important signs on physical exam so uh, typically the liver associated glycogen storage diseases are associated with um, uh, a big liver uh, with the exception of one, GSD0, which is associated with kind of an inability to, to create glycogen at all. Most of these disorders are pretty variable. So you, you can actually, um, in some cases, pass a fasting study with a really mild glycogen storage disease. And like I said before, the thing that really gives those kids away is, is sort of universally poor growth. And even if they've never had horrible hypoglycemia, you know, children with most hepatic glycogen storage diseases, which is, you know, uh, one, three, uh, six, and nine, and, and zero, um, uh, it, with the exception of zero, we'll, we'll have, a, have a big liver. So feeling for a liver is one of the most important parts of that physical exam, as well as looking for hyperpigmentation to see if there's any um, occult uh, um, uh, cortisol insufficiency. Uh, next slide. So the differential basically includes um, the inability to utilize ketones, but this typically presents with very severe acidemia and bicarbs can be as low as three. So it's almost like a, like a, like a diabetic ketoacidosis associated with hypoglycemia instead of hyperglycemia. Uh, glycogen storage diseases of the liver, zero can be the trickiest one because there's no um, big liver associated with that. Disorders of gluconeogenesis 
glucogenesis tend to actually be pretty pronounced because there's typically a block in the gluconeogenic pathway. So you can't get sugar out, but uh, it goes back down the glycolytic pathway and becomes lactate. So you actually have really severe lactic acidemia associated with most of these with lactate levels that can border on 20. Fatty acid oxidation defects. Usually if you're having hypoglycemia with these, you're having significant energy failure in other tissues. Um, and a lot of times, like the, the medium chain fatty acid oxidation defects, you can actually use half the fat in, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, broken down fats are the source of ketone bodies in catabolic responses. So you can actually get a pretty decent ketosis from medium chain um, defects. The long chain defects, you don't typically get ketones with, um, but um, uh, the, those are the ones that are typically catastrophic. So if you see hypoglycemia in medium chains, you usually have some degree of uh, liver dysfunction that can be severe and also cerebral edema. In the very long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders, usually you have a combination of myopathy, hepatopathy, and cardiomyopathy. So usually the hypoglycemia in these can be severe, but if it's going on, you're having other organ failures as well. Uh, carbohydrate metabolism disorders like uh, hereditary fructose intolerance is, is often the same. You can get severe hypoglycemia, but usually the liver disease is striking and you can get ASTs and ALTs upwards of like, you know, more than a thousand to 10,000 in a crisis. Mitochondrial disorders actually have some of the most severe hypoglycemia that, that you can have where a person needs to be fed basically continuously, even in the hopes of maintaining a normal blood glucose. But there's usually a lot of other things. Hyperinsulinism, usually not associated with ketone bodies. Cortisol deficiency, cortisol is the gas pedal that sort of, you know, drives the, uh, the catabolic response. So that's always a question if you see a ketotic hypoglycemia. Same with growth hormone deficiency and hypopituitarism. Dumping syndrome is sort of like hyperinsulinism where you get rapid carbohydrate delivery to the gut and then a hyperinsulinemic response. Maple syrup urine disease always comes up and you can get severe, severe hypoglycemia with this because it interferes with um, the, the production of amino acids um, uh, going, to, uh, going to the liver and, and also a secondary metabolic poisoning. But typically there's degrees of metabolic intoxication with leucine that affect the brain. So you typically have spasticity um, in, in other things, but uh, you, can, you can tell this away pretty, pretty fast. Glycerol kinase deficiency is a gluconeogenic disorder that usually has liver manifestations. Um, you know, different medi medications, children who have... Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, vascular malformations of the, of the skin, like capillary malformations or on propranolol, that can be a big problem. Um, alcohol is something that's often in a lot of folk remedies. I know that that was something uh, that they gave me a lot uh, when, when I was a child and I was sick and having vomiting and, and diarrhea. I later confronted my mother about this after um, I became a, a doctor and she said, I don't see what the big problem was. It's not like you were driving back then. Um, you know, different malignancies can be a problem because they can uh, generate insulin like growth factors. Sometimes there's factitious issues where, you know, parents will give somebody something to provoke something and then idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia, which next slide. Um, next slide. 
uh, which for, for all this is the most common. Uh, essentially, these are the critical labs that you would have, uh, glucose, electrolytes, plasma amino acids, lactate, uh, acylcarnitines, organic acids, acylglycines, a general urinalysis, uh, urine amino acids, ammonia, uric acid, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, insulin, cortisol, free fatty acids, LFTs, CK, and biotinidase activity. This is sort of what the, the critical labs uh, generally uh, consist of. Next slide. Uh, and this is what you would kind of expect to find in ketotic hypoglycemia, sort of a, a, um, a blood glucose that's typically below 50, uh, you know, a beta hydroxybutyrate that's three, the upper limit of normal is uh, like 0 0.3. Uh, so it's 10 times the, the upper limit of normal. Beta hydroxybutyrate is the ketone body in the blood and um, acetoacetate is the ketone body that you detect in the urine. So you see ketones in, in both. Um, urine tells you what was a uh, blood tells you kind of like what what is um, uh, so I usually like to manage people based on their beta hydroxybutyrate levels because I know exactly what state they're in your analyses are good because they sort of tell you what's kind of accumulated in the bladder you know over the last several hours um, uh, free fatty acids are typically increased uh, as, as well. And then plasma amino acids demonstrate decreased gluconeogenic precursors. And the big one is alanine. Next slide. Um, so kind of looking back through all of these labs, you know, this is a child basically who got sent to the ED for dextrose containing fluid support. Um, he's he had been put in the anabolic state ketone bodies are turned off. His blood glucose is a lot better. His neuroglycopenia went away. They felt for his liver and it was normal. Next slide. Um, so basically he likely has um, idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia. The general workup for this includes um, uh, 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 either lactate and beta hydroxybutyrate if you see acidemia and hypoglycemia and urine, organic acids, insulin, beta hydroxybutyrate and free fatty acids. Um, if you see elevated ketones um, and low lactate, that sort of puts you into the pool of glycogen storage disease, ketone utilization defects, idiopathic ketone ketotic hypoglycemia in, in endocrinological diseases. If you see elevated lactate, that's kind of the, the most common glycogen storage diseases that are also gluconeogenic failures. Um, so gluconeogenic defects, mitochondrial defects, uh, which also includes pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency and uh, HMG COA lice, which is inability to produce ketones really at all. Um, uh, and if you have increased free fatty acids over your, the amount of beta hydroxybutyrate that you can create, that's typically indicative of fatty acid oxidation disorders. And then decreased free fatty acids and beta hydroxybutyrate is sort of hyperinsulinism. And what you can see often in newborns is sort of a stress hyperinsulinism where, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, stress in the neonatal period will make children secrete a lot of insulin and, and they can go hypoglycemic that way. Next slide. Uh, so going back, um, uh, basically, uh, that's the idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia is, you know, kind of what's, what's going on here based upon the discussion of that differential in the labs. Next slide. Um, so this is a study of the common causes of hypoglycemia among um, non-diabetic children in a, a pediatric emergency department, I believe, um, Australia, over the course of a year. Next slide. 
and uh, idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia is is the most uh, second most common next to hyperinsulinism. So it's something that is extremely common. You know, unlike a lot of metabolic disorders that are that are actually phenomenally rare. Uh, next slide. Next slide. So one of the things that's important to note is that it's almost always uh, male patients tend to predominate, and it's usually um, you know children who are less than the 25th percentile. But you don't have to be um, in in the fifth percentile to really have it. You can actually have a relatively low but normal weight. Um, the average blood glucose at presentation was legitimate hypoglycemia at 34 milligrams per deciliter, and usually it was lethargy seizure vomiting, and in some cases, coma. More than half of the time, or a little less than half, there was some type of an intercurrent illness. And this is one of the most important things to know. This is almost always after a child has undergone the unconscious fasting associated with sleep. So these children were recognized, you know, probably at six in the morning, and they made their way to the emergency department, you know, before eight. So sleep is can be one of the most dangerous times for these kids. So if they're having a hard time before bed, then they, then they really have to go to the ED. Uh, next slide. So what causes idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia? Next slide. Uh, next slide. There's a thought that this actually represents the like a decreased um, uh, range of normal. So children who are just sort of having lower fasting tolerance than the normal population, but don't actually have an overt uh, biochemical defect or endocrinological problem. Next slide. Uh, toddler behavior can be a big problem. Children are sort of fed regularly through the infantile period, but when children get to become toddlers, then they exert kind of their own desires. So some children have, you know, picky eating that puts them at risk for a hypocaloric state. Some, you know, parents and children have elimination diets like glucose or, I mean, um, uh, 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 gluten and also uh, dairy products uh, that are high in, in protein and fat. Uh, so restrictive diets can place children at risk. And then children who just generally have access to food or have, have risk as well because they're sort of in a natural hypocaloric risk state. Next slide. Next slide. Uh, so there's a number of potential etiologies that we'll sort of discuss, such as environmental and toxic issues. Uh, decreased, um, you know, glucose production, either through, you know, the diet or the utilization of resources like glycogen and glycogen storage diseases, uh, gluconeogenic substrate deficiency, um, in impaired ketone body utilization, um, and then also epigenetic changes. Next slide. Uh, so this is generally kind of uh, the, the, the substrates that you tend to use, you know, based upon time in the fast. Carbohydrates is sort of initially what the preferred substrate is um, from glycogen and gluconeogenesis. Then over time, you start to use more protein um, and then additional fuels from ketones and fats. Next slide. Um, next slide. So this basically is a, a schema of how everything works. Glycogen is stored in the liver. Next slide. And then um, uh, if you have decreased glycogen stores, then you, you have a really hard time maintaining its release into the blood and your, your glucose levels can drop very quickly. Next slide. 
Uh, typically, gluconeogenesis involves amino acids being liberated from the skeletal muscles going to the liver where they're, they're then converted into sugar. The degree of flow you have of those amino acids uh, from the muscles to the liver really determines your ability to maintain a normal glucose level. Next slide. Later in the fast, fatty acids are broken down, and then when there's too many of them made to go into the Krebs cycle, they actually condense in the liver and become ketone bodies and then are exported, and then they're used by other tissues like the heart and uh, in, in the brain, uh, in, in the muscles. Um, so one of the things that's important to mention is uh, in infants, ketone bodies are actually typically undetectable because their rate of utilization by the heart is so high that you almost can't ever see them. So if you see ketone bodies in an infant, usually it's a concern that they have worsening efficiency of the Krebs cycle, and they may have an underlying metabolic disorder. So those can actually be a, be a red flag if you find them in a child really who's under three months of age. Next slide. Um, so if you have sort of a decreased flow of amino acid from the muscles, usually um, is a decreased alanine is what you see. It's really only a matter of time before you have gluconeogenic substrate failure. Next slide. Uh, ketone bodies tend to accumulate, and then you can become, uh, you know, in, in increasingly ill, setting up a vicious cycle where you don't want to eat but don't have the capacity to fast. Next slide. So this basically is a schema of the, uh, the ketone handling. You have different transporters that are responsible for getting ketones out of the liver and then back out of the blood to another tissue. Um, Escot is what you use to um, you know, sort of convert a ketone into a form that can be used. And then ketothylase chops those ketone bodies up into um, acetyl-CoA so that they can be used for energy. Defects in any of those can cause ketone handling disorders where you typically have acidemia from too many ketones accumulating in the blood really without um, the ability to use them for energy. So you get secondary hypoglycemia, um, needing more sugar to give you the energy that you can't get from ketone bodies. Next slide. They have actually done a substantial number of studies trying to uncover exactly, you know, what the mechanism of uh, idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia is, but most of them were done actually in the 60s when they did things that you probably can't do nowadays. Next slide. So this is a fasting study of 167 uh, children uh, grouped by age who, you know, were above the second standard deviation, um, you know, for, for weight and uh, below two standard deviations um, for weight. So not too light, not too heavy. This was meant to capture basically developmental fasting tolerance. And you can see in general, uh, fasting tolerance is significantly poorer for children who are under two compared to those who are 25 to 84 months of age. And then fasting tolerance is pretty good once you're 85 months of age and, and above. So the, the, the population, it tends to hit that really like, you know, between really 18 months is really the, the peak of this really has a natural physiological fasting intolerance um, that's worse than it is in other ages and maybe why um, you have improved fasting tolerance as you get older. Next slide. 
so in these children, I think the thing that they saw now, there is a thought that, um, that kind of as the head circumference, which is sort of the, the brain size and the brain is the major glycemic demand is a driver of a lot of this. Um, uh, as the body gets bigger, you get more muscle bulk to supply gluconeogenic substrate and your demand gets smaller because your head size is proportionally smaller for your body. But what they actually saw too was the, the ketogenic response of the children was significant. Um, 2.23 versus 0.62 is the average for children who are between seven and 18 years of age. So these children become hyperketotic very quickly as a natural aspect of their physiology. And during these fasts, maintain much lower blood glucose levels than you were able to when you were a little bit bigger and had a little more bulk and sort of a, a decreased you know, head circumference to, to length ratio. Uh, next slide. So basically, um, the initial biochemical characterization was by Heymond in 1974, and um, uh, patients had kind of accelerated ketosis into a fast and had increased free fatty acids, lower insulin levels, and uh, rapid decreases in alanine levels. One of the things that they actually did to them uh, was they... Um, uh, they proved that they had uh, a decreased gluconeogenic substrate over time and actually used alanine infusion to correct their hypoglycemia, saying the biochemistry is normal, but the flow of alanine to the liver is actually what the problem is. Next slide. Uh, in veterinary medicine, ketotic hypoglycemia is actually a big problem because it happens to cows when they start to milk. They stop producing milk and uh, they're actually given, next slide, big doses of dexamethasone to increase the flow of amino acids from the, uh, the muscles to the liver. The glucose levels go so high that it actually activates insulin and the ketone bodies get turned off and they start milking again. Next slide. They actually did this to a child in the 70s where they admitted him, uh, tricked him into going into a, a, a IKH episode with a provocative fast, then gave him cortisone and basically saw the same thing, um, increasing the uh, amino acid flow uh, from the muscle to the liver. It turned off his ketone bodies by, by activating his insulin through self-induced hyperglycemia through increasing gluconeogenic substrate. Next slide. Um, so uh, one of the things that was actually found was that um, children uh, with ketotic hypoglycemia had a higher basal metabolic rate and a decreased uh, oxidation rate, so decreased ability to use um, the most numerous uh, amino acid to support their own energy in, in the muscles. So there was sort of decreased hepatic glucose production without, you know, really increased peripheral utilization. Next slide. Um, this basically is a breakdown, next slide, of the sex distribution where uh, men um, or, or dis male infants are disproportionately affected. So of all the studies done on ketotic hypoglycemia, adding up the gender uh, involved, 97 um, males versus 48 females characterized in all of the studies sort of demonstrates a male preponderance of these, this particular subtype of patients. Next slide. So 
Typical physical associations are a height and weight less than the 50th percentile, history of prematurity, a decreased muscle mass. Children who are born with missing limbs actually seem to have an increased susceptibility, maybe due to decreased muscle mass through gluconeogenic substrate availability. And then children who have macrocephaly, children who have disorders where their heads are significantly larger, like um, a PTEN deficiency, uh, have had some association with ketotic hypoglycemia. Next slide. Um, so basically, um, in these children, ketosis typically begins much earlier. Basal insulin levels, which represents your anabolic tone, are typically decreased. Um, the ability of the skeletal muscles to utilize amino acids sometimes is reduced. And then there's some thought that ketone bodies uh, can't fully be used um, as, as efficiently, um, even though they're made much faster. Uh, next slide. Alcohol is actually a gluconeogenic inhibitor, so that can cause um, ketotic hypoglycemia. And then also a suppression of uh, the, the, the um, uh, uh, pituitary axis with um, endogenous steroids is a big one, both inhaled uh, corticosteroids, but also topical corticosteroids for, for eczema. Next slide. Next slide. One of the things that was found uh, on a population of children who had um, idiopathic uh, ketotic hypoglycemics was 20% uh, uh, of patients um, in a given study uh, had um, sort of uh, uh, lower range glycogen storage defects. They were actually found to have glycogen storage diseases um, after sequencing. In uh, these children sort of had an idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia phenotype but then when larger sequencing was done on them, they actually had glycogen storage diseases that sort of presented on their milder end of the spectrum. Next slide. So epigenetics actually have a role in this as well, which is sort of genes that your body can, can activate or chooses to silence, but you, you don't have a mutation in that gene, it's your ability to access it that's the problem. And the environment can actually cause these types of silencings or activations. Next slide. There was two twins, uh, uh, identical, a healthy twin, um, and then a twin who had ketotic hypoglycemia that was severe that presented at 14 months of age. The twins were genetically identical and were studied at six years of age. Their ketone handling genes were all sequenced and were normal. Um, and they were both basically the same exact weight. Next slide. So 20 kilograms versus 21, basically the same length, basically the same size, the same BMI, pretty much the same body fat, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, almost the same, you know, glucose. Next slide. But one of the big problems was that this twin um, produced ketones at a significantly higher rate than his other twin. Um, but many of the other labs were pretty much the same. The insulin tone for the affected twin was a little bit lower as well. Next slide. This is kind of interesting. So this is uh, the, um, the, the ketone production by the twin affected with beta-hydroxybutyrate. So it's much higher than his identical twin sibling. And um, the glucose for the affected twin drops so much faster uh, than, than the unaffected twin, even though they're genetically identical. Next slide. 
Um, they actually infused the, the twin who had the ketotic hypoglycemia with ketones, and it almost appeared like he just couldn't use them. The unaffected twin, no matter how much you infused them with, actually didn't have any change in serum concentration, but the other twin you gave it to him seemed like he couldn't use it very well. And then the concentrations went way, way up before coming down. Next slide. So this is actually an area that's still sort of actively being explored. And um, uh, one of the things is the disease process is largely self-limited. So generally, um, it, the attention it gets isn't that high because people will say, well, if we can support the child till they're eight, then they won't have uh, really any issues. There's not a lot of long-term follow-up studies on if there's any decreased neuro neurodevelopmental outcomes from having recurrent episodes of, of hypoglycemia, which vary really from individual to, to individual. Um, and uh, treatment now is mostly focused on supplying carbohydrates at critical moments to prevent ketosis and going into the catabolic state, which for these kids is, is unstable. Um, and elimination of the catabolic state is actually as important as, as restoring the blood sugar it's, itself. Um, so I, I know I ran over by a minute or two, so I thank you guys, and I'd be happy to, to hear any questions. Thank you, Bill. Uh, great presentation as always. And uh, uh, I got a lot of comments about your enthusiasm from going to slide to slide. Next slide. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But I, I've, I've always loved your enthusiasm for everything you do. So thank you very much. We do have a, we have a couple of questions. And uh, one is from uh, your colleague, Beth Matt. Uh, and Beth says, I swear that I see this diagnosis most often in kids whose parents are healthy eaters, quote unquote and restrict juice and other junk foods baseline. Then when the kids are sick, they don't, get, they don't hydrate with, uh, with carbohydrate-containing beverages, or they don't like them and push the water. Not to deny that these are clearly metabolic changes in these kids, but do you think anticipatory guidance in these families can prevent future episodes? I, I think so. There, there are some kids who really fall into that, that boundary, and I, I've seen that before where they, children are sort of uh, carb restricted. And we've even seen a few who kind of kind of ride that blood glucose at the lower range. And they're sort of on like keto diets, but as kids and as adults, you can handle that a little more, but sometimes as kids, you, you can't. So I, I think they sort of ride the physiological edge a little more. And I've had conversations with those parents that say, you know, basically, um, you know, if he can have this diet and he's not having, you know, a problem, that's one thing. But if his body goes into an increased metabolic demand state associated with illness, then he, he really needs carbohydrates and he really needs sugar containing foods or, or she really needs sugar containing foods to put her into, um, you know, put her into an anabolic state. And generally, if I've met that child or you've met that child, that's because their physiology has demonstrated that, that, they're, that they have a catabolic insufficiency associated with illness. So they've, they've declared themselves. So at that point, um, you know, I, I think you can really say, though, this diet is good for their overall health. If they're starting to enter into an illness state, like this is the problem, they really, you know, need to have more carbs, you know, otherwise they're, they're going to become hypoglycemic and then it could affect their brain. 
Okay, thank you. Another uh, question. Is there a significant downside to otherwise normal adults or teens doing intermittent fasting, 16 hours daily or 24 hours every other day? I think for uh, for older children, there's really not too much of a, not too much of a problem with with intermittent fasting. And the 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 hypoglycemia is usually symptomatic. Uh, so if if kids can't um, uh, uh, do that very well, then then they'll often you know have have signs of of that. Uh, um, but they're, they're, depending on the child, uh, there's not always, you know, too big of a problem. I would say, though, that if they do that, they put themselves into a precipitative state. So the things that they should avoid if they're adults are alcohol. Um, and there was a big problem that existed with something called drunkorexia, where in order to, you know, maintain a body weight and drink high calorie uh, foods, you know, young adults would fast during the week and then booze during the weekend. And then they would develop uh, serious alcohol induced ketotic hypoglycemia and, and sometimes die. So I, I'd say to young adults, if you're going to do that, then, you know, avoid some of the environmental intoxicants that like alcohol that can make that and push it into a critical state. Thanks. Uh, from your uh, uh, mentor, Dr. Koenabo, Bill, amazing presentation. So proud of you. Question is, you told us that children that are sent home with juice will get into trouble again in a couple of hours. Then we have to add protein or fat. In the, do, we, do we have to add protein or diet in the next hours? You know, I actually, there's a couple ways to deal with this. And I've, I've dealt with that a couple times before, especially if a kid doesn't live next to an ED. You know, usually um, if you feed a child recurrently throughout the night, sometimes that can, can keep them in a good shape. And if the, they have a ketone strip at home for ketones in the urine in a glucometer, if they've had a problem before, then, then you can effectively manage them over the phone. I have them usually do a little muscle milk before bed and then one time in the night to give them a little bit of kind of increased gluconeogenic substrate in the form of protein. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, another form of the, the cornstarch where you have a gluconeogenic substrate that's kind of a slow release and consistent release from the gut in the, in the form of protein. So I, I either do, do milk uh, before bed and once during the night or muscle milk because it has a little bit more protein and generally is a little sweeter and, and kids tend to tend to like it. Um, if uh, their physiology is really declared itself and they tend to be very unstable, then, then usually if they go to the ED um, and get uh, D10 containing fluids until they can, they can demonstrate they can tolerate calories. That's kind of the other way, but that's not always reality, especially kind of in these COVID times. Yeah, so, so Dr. Cohen and I have a, just a follow-up question. You know, we, we, we want to drink this muscle milk. Can you tell us what that is? Oh, it's like a proprietary uh, a formula that's, that's, that's out there. Uh, it's like something you can, uh, you, you can buy at the, at the store. It's something that like the, the fitness people tend to drink because it, it has a lot of protein in it and they, they, they work out and then drink, drink muscle milk. But I'd found that it actually has this kind of secondary 
property that it, it does tend to have some some benefit in these situations but it's it's for me it's mostly in anecdotal um but that that's kind of what i i used to do great um last question when treating in the ed uh, do you treat with d10w and how much per kilo bolos first how soon after you recheck labs um you know pretty much like once the person is uh per per kilo um usually uh i just do uh uh a, a d10 containing fluids no matter how old you are if the uh uh usually i do one and a half times the maintenance rate and that for most age groups is sufficient to eliminate the ketosis. You, you can sometimes tell if you need to do more. And it's, it's been rare that I've had to go up to D12 and a half at one and a half times maintenance, but usually they've sort of declared themselves. And I, my intent is to keep them there throughout the night and then see if they can eat breakfast the next morning. If uh, their ketones are gone and they, they usually should be after, you know, I think, um, you know, four to five hours uh, and they can, they can demonstrate the ability to tolerate caloric intake, then I can kind of wean the fluids um, and, and kind of send them home as long as they're weaned, you know, kind of slowly. The, um, uh, the other thing that I had seen some people in the EDs start to do for this is they actually give them like a, a 20 per kilo D5 uh, normal saline bolus when, when they come in to give an increased uh, glucose infusion rate. And that, that's been kind of variably successful um, from what, what, I've, what I've seen. But if, if the beta hydroxybutyrate in the serum normalizes, and generally I check maybe four to six hours after starting um, IV fluids, uh, then, then you know that, that the person's kind of in the right state and they're kind of you know, in the anabolic state, not out of the catabolic state. But it gets to be very tricky if they're gonna go home in the, and they're still in the catabolic state. And a lot of times that, that ends up sort of being uh, kind of what, what can happen if they don't seem that bad and they're taking some PO, but then they go home and go to sleep and then aren't, aren't taking any caloric intake. So you can kind of keep them from going to sleep um, by feeding them during the night. Um, uh, and that, that's kind of a way around that if they can't come in. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Dr. Ratson sends uh, her regards and she thanks you for uh, including Tony Pagliari and Maury Hammonds. St. Louis Children's, uh, they were mentors in uh, her fellowship in the 70s. And uh, Jen Mancoin from Neurology just wanted to make, uh, makes a comment that uh, we have a ketogenic diet program for the treatment of epilepsy, and you highlighted this should be medically supervised. So with that, thank you, Bill, for a fantastic presentation. Lots of great questions. Everyone uh, remembers you here fondly. And uh, remember, you have a job. If you want to come back, don't let my colleagues at Brown tell you I try to recruit you over grand rounds. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. I miss you guys quite a bit. And uh, CCMC will always be my home. Absolutely. And so come back home. Uh, all right. Take care, Bill. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you again on Friday. We have Dr. Shriver and uh, Dr. Lapak talking about pediatric cardiology and COVID-19. And then we'll see you again for Grand Rounds on Tuesday. Be safe. Uh, we'll see you again. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Hi, Bill. That was that was great. Mm. Oh, thanks a lot, Dr. Tucker. I had a little bit of a tough time. Like, I think it took me a second to realize how to get my slides a little bit bigger on my screen. <laughs> I was like, I think that's why I was like looking like like into the screen with my chin. <laughs>